Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. you've been away for a little while or this is your first time with us. Um, what we are doing is we're working our way through the letter to the Colossians. Uh, we've been reading it together and pausing to reflect on its meaning. And uh, this morning, after having looked at the uh, situation in Colossae, that it was a very uh, sort of murky kind of culture, that had a lot of different dynamics going on and claims on your life and your thought and your values and so forth, uh, that this letter is written so that the Colossian Christians can have a sense of clarity, clarity about who they are and what they believe, but most especially clarity on who Jesus Christ is, because that's what gives clarity to our day-to-day -day living. Uh, we start now a new paragraph. It starts at verse 15, runs through verse 20. Uh, in the grammar of the Greek, it's actually just a continuation of the sentence of the previous paragraph, and so while it starts with the word he, we know for sure that it's speaking about Jesus Christ. And so uh, we read this paragraph, and over the next three weeks or so, we will see three big ideas. The first in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. We'll be looking at that this morning. The second big thought is that he is the firstborn of all creation. And we will see from that that the word firstborn doesn't have to do with an order of origin. It's not like Jesus is the first created thing and then there's the rest of creation. Rather, that word firstborn has to do with status, has to do with his prerogatives, with his privilege has to do with his authority, and so we'll be looking at that. And then the third big thought that we'll look at is in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. We'll look at Jesus Christ as the one uh, in whom the church finds its definition, its meaning, its purpose, its direction, and those kinds of things. So that's the game plan for the next uh, several weeks. That's what we'll be looking at. This morning we come to that first thought that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of a God who cannot be seen. Now that word invisible is significant. Now there's a lot of people who say, I don't believe in God because I can't see him. Usually goes something like this, I only believe in things that I can see or things that I can touch or things that I can hear or smell or, or, or whatever taste. And, and so I only believe in things that, that, uh, that I can sense and experience with my five senses. Now the first thing you do is you tell that person that, well, which of your five senses did you use to count your five senses? Because you can't see them, touch them, hear them, smell them, taste them. But a person will say, I don't believe in God because He's inaccessible to my sensory experience. And the answer to that is, well, of course you can't see him, touch him. He's too big. You just can't get your mind around who God is. I mean, other things are pretty small. Things like, oh, the universe compared to God, that's small. 
You see, in theory, if we're intelligent enough and we spend enough time and do enough experimentation and we, and we do enough reading and research, in theory, we can understand the universe. In theory, we can get our mind around how the universe is put together because, after all, it's, it's pretty small, it's, it's finite, it has good definition, and so all you have to do is find where the universe stops and ends and just study in between it. You, in theory, you know, given three, four, five hundred billion years, you could, you could come to, to understand the universe. Folks, you can't never get your mind around God. You cannot get your mind around a God who is eternal and everlasting, a God who is beyond all measure. And so to say that he is the invisible God is to simply uh, recognize the obvious. This God is not limited to our sensory experience. Now, I understand that all around us is the evidence of God, and that's, that's really, you know, the, the evidence for God is a, is a different matter. Uh, but I just want to say that, uh, you know, it's, it's odd to me that those who want to eliminate God from their thinking simply because they cannot do scientific experiments to attain to him, that somehow they, they wander off. Now, some of you have heard of Stephen Hawking. Uh, Stephen Hawking is supposed to be the smartest man uh, in the world. Uh, he can't be. My brother is. But, but, he's, but he's pretty smart. He's the one who came up with the idea of black holes. He and, and, and Penrose came up with the idea of black holes and, and the idea that matter, when it comes into spontaneous existence, comes in as matter and antimatter. But at the edge of a black hole, the gravitational attraction of the black hole pulls in the antimatter, and that's why we have matter and, uh, uh, and, and out of balance with antimatter in the universe. I, look, I'm just telling you this stuff so you know I read his book. But Stephen Hawking is one bright fellow who knows a lot about the universe and astrophysics and those kinds of things. Recently, he has joined up with a Russian billionaire, which sort of boggles the mind for those of us who remember the Soviet Union. But uh, there, there's a billionaire in Russia who has committed $100 million to finding extraterrestrial intelligence. In other words, yes, they're, they're trying to find alien life, and he has committed $100 million to pay for the telescopes, to pay for the radio telescopes, and to pay for the scientists to sit and to listen to see if they can hear evidence coming to us from the outermost reaches of our universe and to find out, uh, is, is there anybody out there? And when asked, why are you doing this? Here's what Stephen Hawking said. He said, it's important to know we are not alone in the darkness. There's something about the human heart that needs to know we're not alone in the darkness. Needs to know that there's someone who cares, someone who is able, that there's something more than just what we have here. Now, the interesting thing about Hawking was, in the very next par paragraph in the article I was reading, he goes on to say, well, here, you know, how, how are we going to find out if, if there are extraterrestrial uh, intelligence out there? It's because we'll hear radio signals that have bled out of their solar systems and galaxies and have come all the way to, to us, and so we can hear this information coming to us. In other words, what they want is they want scientists to sit and to listen to see if they can hear old broadcasts of I Love Lucy coming from Alpha Centauri. And the moment they hear over their radio, Lucy, I'm home, they, they are off. You know, they, they, you know we, we've got it. You know. 
But Hawking went on to say, he said, look, we don't want to tell them we're here, though. You know, we don't want to broadcast a signal that says, hey, you know, there's, there's, there's human life forms here because the people out there, they must be billions of years ahead of us. Why, we can't be the head of the, of the pack. That's frightening. But, you know, they must be billions of years ahead of us. And if they find out that we're here, they may come and kill us. So we don't want them to know we're here. Does he have any idea how long we've been broadcasting I Love Lucy reruns out into the, into the universe? And you know, when we get that message back, you know what it's going to be? Turn off I Love Lucy! <laughs> now, why couldn't it be my favorite Morrison? I don't know. But there's something about the human heart that wants to know that there's a God. Doesn't phrase it that way all the time, doesn't understand it all the time, but there's something about the human heart that needs to know we are not alone in the darkness. There's someone who cares. Now, the problem is God is invisible. He's beyond us. We can't not attain to God. We can't attain to him because he's way bigger than our thinking. We cannot get, wrap our minds around who God is. But the other reason that we cannot know God is because of our sinfulness, our rebellion against God. We were created to know God and to love God and to serve him, glorify him. When our first parents sinned, that introduced sin into the human estate. And as a result of that, all of us are sinners. And so we rebel against God. And as sinners, we cannot stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God. So when Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's saying Jesus is the image of the God that we cannot reach on our own, not with our minds, not with our goodness and morality, not with our philosophy, not with our religion. We simply cannot reach him. But the answer to that is that God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. So that's what we're looking at this morning, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, I thought that everybody was created in the image of God. And in point of fact, the scripture says that when God created the human race, he created the male and female, and he created them in the image of God. And that's simply to say we were created in such a way that our whole existence should reflect the glory of God, should reflect the holiness and righteousness of God, should reflect who God is, giving him praise, honor, adoration, worship, all those things. When we sin, we decline that opportunity. Now, scholars, theologians argue about the existence of the image of God in the sinful heart. All, all we can say is, at least, is that at the very best, the image is so warped and distorted and, and twisted that it no longer reflects who God is. But Jesus Christ reflects perfectly who God is. In fact, if, if, you, if you have Colossians in front of you, look at chapter 1, verse 19. In him that is in Christ. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of who God is dwells in Jesus Christ. All of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. All of the holiness of God in Jesus Christ. All of the love of God in Jesus Christ. All of the compassion, all of the mercy found in Jesus Christ. Everything that God is, is to be found in Jesus Christ doesn't take much of a genius to figure out if everything that God is is found in Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ must himself be God. So when Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, he says this is God's answer for our need. We need to know God, 
We cannot know him because of our sin. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, fully man, fully God. Uh, he is the image of God who brings us to know God by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God reveals himself to us in ways that, that make sense, that ways that call us to him. So Jesus Christ is the image of God. By the way, in the uh, book of Romans chapter 8, we are told that our destiny, that we as believers in Jesus Christ are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. So now you see how it's all working together. Jesus Christ is the image of God. We were created to reflect the image of God. Christ is the image of God. We are, we are destined, predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and that's how our destiny and the purpose of our creation is fulfilled. So that, that first word we look at is that word uh, invisible. That Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the God that we could not reach on our own, but God has reached down to us and brought him to himself in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes you will have a friend, and they will say something like this. Jesus never said, I am God. You ever have somebody say that to you? Something like that? Jesus never said, I am God. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus say, I am God. That's right. That's absolutely right. But then ask your friend, you say, well, who do you think Jesus is? Well, I think he's a good teacher. Do you know Jesus never said, I am a good teacher? He never, he never claimed to be an, a, a good teacher. One guy came up to him and said, hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to interpret eternal life? He said, good teacher. Good teacher, what do I have to do to interpret, uh, inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. And then he went on to say, well, you know, the commandments, keep the commandments. Sort of just went right by to basically say, you called me good teacher. You better think about what that means. Because you call me good teacher, there's no one good but God alone. Do the logic, you know, figure this out, fella. You called me good teacher, what does that really mean? That was a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, yeah, that's what I am. I'm a good teacher. Glad you finally got it. That, that's all I've been trying to be is a, is, is a good teacher. And, and uh, you, you finally recognize that, and that, that's really great. No, he says, you call me a good teacher. Think about what you're saying here. So even in that, Jesus deflected it from good teacher to God him, himself. So uh, the, the folks will come up and say, well, you know, and Jesus never said I am God. And that's actually true. And you can understand why. There were some times when he told people, don't, don't, don't go around telling people who, who, who I am. Sometimes he would cast out a demon and he'd tell the demons, he'd command them, do not tell others who I am. Did that you know, uh, on, on a couple of occasions. You know, and the reason he did that was even when a demon tells a lie, even when a demon tells the truth, it is, order, it is in order to advance a lie. So when a demon tells the truth, what he's really trying to do is convey a lie into your life. For example, you, know, you remember when Paul was in Philippi and he was going through the marketplace, there was a demon-possessed girl. And the demon in her was crying out, I know who you are, you're servants of the Most High God. You would think Paul would have said, hey, this is really great. You know, yeah, tell these people who I am. I'm a servant of the Most High God, you need to listen to me. No, he turned and rebuked her, rebuked the, de the demon in her. Why? Because that demon was saying, I know who you are. You're servants of the Most High God, aren't you? With sarcasm, twisting the words, making them sound silly. 
speaking the truth in order to convey a lie. And so Jesus, who doesn't need demons to proclaim who he is, I mean, they know who he is. He commanded the demons, he said, don't, don't you distort this thing. But there were some people, he said, don't tell them who I am. You know, uh, lepers, you know, the leper came to him and, and Jesus cleansed the leper. And then he said, but, but don't tell anybody who I am. The guy ran off and started talking. But, he, but Jesus said, don't tell people who I am. And I can tell you why. This leper probably went back to his, his hometown and everybody saw he was cleansed. How did that happen? Well, I was cleansed. Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is going to exalt Israel among the nations. When Messiah comes, the Romans are out. The, the Jews are, are, are restored to the kingdom. All the nations of the earth will come to us. Hey, this is great stuff. We're about to just be the winners uh, and, and, and the universal sweepstakes. You know, Jesus is the Messiah, and that means we're on easy street. In other words, he totally misunderstood. Well-meaning trying to, to say something good about Jesus, but he didn't know what he was talking about. You see, it wasn't until after Jesus was crucified and buried and then God raised him from the dead. See, that's when the aha moment came. That's when the lights went on and they said, ah, oh, that's what the Messiah is. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who dies for our sins, the, the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who conquers the grave, that God raises him from death. He is the one who has ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. That's who Jesus is. So it's not until after the resurrection that, that the folks can really understand who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the anointed one of God. So Jesus told uh, some of those whom he cured, I don't want you telling other people because you're, you're just going to distort things and get it wrong in that kind of of way. But um, Jesus as the image of God. And so we're back to our friend who says, well, Jesus never said he was God, therefore I don't believe he was God. So who do you believe he is? I believe he was a good teacher. So why do you believe he was a good teacher? He never claimed to be a good teacher. Why do you think he was a good teacher? Well, because he did the things a good teacher would do. He was able to take eternal truths and put them into language and concepts that people could understand. He was a good teacher because he knew the needs of his pupils, of his students, and he was able to, to uh, shape his lesson plan to meet their needs so that it would be creating teachable moments and draw them into a greater truth. He was a good teacher because he does what a good teacher does. Sometimes you'll ask people, who is Jesus? Well, he was a great moral example. Did you know that nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus say, I am a good moral example? But people look at that and they say, he does everything that a great moral example would do. He lives a sinless life. He lives a perfect life. He has absolute love and compassion. He, 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 he exalts goodness and, and righteousness in the world. You know, those kinds of things. So he, he looks like a, a, a great moral example because he does what a moral example would do. Now, here's the point. Jesus never claimed, I am God. He just did and said things that only God can say and do. I mean, you, you look at the scriptures. And that, that, that's what's going on here. Um, first off, well, he had that special relationship with the Father. He talked about my Father, I'm going to my Father, you know. Um, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. 
talked about a, a very close relationship with the Father. You know that no other person on the planet to that point had ever used that kind of language. The Jews occasionally talked about God as, as Father as an illustration. Uh, the, the, in Greco-Roman religion, they sometimes talked about the gods as fathers, but that was in, this, in, in a very crude sense of, of procreating other gods. Um, and, and other religions have sometimes used the father imagery, but it's only Jesus, and the, I mean, others have copied it since then, but Jesus was the first to say, God is my father. There was an intimacy of a relationship there that you don't find anywhere else. That's, that's something only the Son of God, that is God himself, um, would do in that way. I mean, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now think about that. No one comes to the Father but by me. He doesn't say no one comes to the Father except through my teachings. He doesn't say no one comes to the Father except through following my example. He says no one comes to the Father except through me. I have to bring them into the presence of the Father. Now if Jesus is not God, this is a pretty audacious thing to say. If Jesus is not God, this is an impossible thing for a human being to say. Why? Because if one human being can bring another human being to God, that means God must be connected to us in a sort of a material way that reduces him to the level of creation. Philosophy 101, if that didn't register, we're, we're moving on. But, but, but the point is to say, no one comes to the Father but through me is to say, and I and the Father are one. That's how you get to the Father. You come to me, you come to the Father. So that's, that's the first thing. He had an intimate relationship with the Father. Secondly, Jesus forgave sins. You remember the account of uh, Jesus teaching uh, one time, and he was in a house, and people had come into the house, and they were sitting around having a home Bible study and so forth. And uh, four guys uh, had their friend, a fifth guy. Uh, four guys were carrying a stretcher, and uh, the guy on the stretcher, he's, he's paralyzed. Uh, so they're, they're, they're coming up, and they want Jesus to see their friend who's paralyzed, and they come up, and the way is blocked. They can't get in. There's, there's such a crowd trying to listen to Jesus, they can't get to him. So being creative fellows, uh, they go to a little stairway on the, on the outside of the house, and they go up to the roof. At that time, they had, had flat roofs, and they go, go up to the roof, and they start peeling back the tiles and all the roof stuff there. I don't know what the insurance claim looked like, but... Uh, <laughs> But anyway, they, they start tearing up the roof, and they, they create a hole. And meanwhile, Jesus is teaching, and all this dust and stuff is coming down, and people are just, what's going on here? Hole opens up, and then down from the ceiling comes this guy on a stretcher right in front of Jesus. That's obvious what the guys on the roof want. They want the field. They want him to walk. That's obvious. They know it. Jesus knows it. Everybody in the room knows it. So they're all waiting. Are you going to heal him? Is he going to walk? Jesus looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. There's no reason for him to do that. Nobody asked him to do that. On his own initiative, he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, the religious leaders in the room, they start looking at it and say, you know, <laughs> yeah, I remember my theology class, and it seems to me only God can forgive sins. It seems to me that this Jesus doesn't have the prerogative to forgive sins. Jesus is uh, here, and he's, you know, he knows what they're thinking. He says, so, you, you think only God can forgive sins? So that you will know the Son of Man, that's how Jesus referred to himself, so that you'll know the Son of Man has power and authority to forgive sins that we know only belongs to God, so that you know I have that authority. I'm going to give you an illustration. 
You're going to see forgiveness in action. Buddy, get up and walk. Springs to his feet, takes his bed. He's walking right out of there. And everybody's looking at that and saying, huh? That was a Hebrew for it. And Jesus claimed what everybody recognized only belongs to God, the right to forgive sins. You see, you can only forgive the sins that are committed against you. You know, if you rob my bank, first you won't get much out of it, but, but suppose for the moment I have a bank, okay. And you rob my bank and you take the money. Okay, you've robbed my bank. And then one of you goes up to this guy, the bank robber, you go up to him and say, I forgive you. I'm over here saying, wait a minute. He didn't take your money. He didn't rob your bank. He didn't sin against you. It's up to me to decide whether he's forgiven or not. You see, you can only forgive the sins committed against you. We could go on a little bit more technicality to that, but that's basically it. This man in the pallet, he hadn't sinned against Jesus, but he had sinned against God. We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We've all violated God's plan, will, and destiny for our lives, and so we are all sinners before God. And that's why only God can forgive sins. He had never sinned against Jesus. And so when Jesus said, I forgive your sins, he's saying, I forgive the offense that you did to me when you sinned when you broke the commandments, when you violated the will of God. Only God forgives sins. Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins. Do the logic. Jesus was accepting a prerogative that we would say only belongs to God. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, wait a minute, who said thou shalt not kill? Give you a hint, it wasn't Moses. It was God. God said, thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, but I say unto you, here's what it really means. He spoke with an authority that no one else had or had even tried to exert. He exerted an authority that only belongs to God. In Luke 21, 33, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. Then he said, my words will not pass away. Look, there's a lot of great literature, a lot of words that have been written by human beings. All of them will pass away. I mean, Shakespeare wrote some good things. I mean, it's good to read Shakespeare, especially if you have notes at the bottom and in the margins to tell you what all those words mean. But the writings of Shakespeare will pass away. I'm telling you, here's hope for all you people who've had to take junior and senior English in high school. Moby Dick will pass away. <laughs> Won't ever have to read it again. But the words of Jesus Christ never pass away. Amen. The Word of God never expires. The Word of God never, never loses its authority and its power. And Jesus said, my words will never pass away. He's either deluded or he's God. And as he's saying this, the only possible thing that can be rolling through his head is, as God, I know my words will not pass away. Uh, look, look, look at John 8:58. Let's just turn there real quick. 
858. It's right at the end of the chapter. So find John 9, 1 and go back two verses. Um, well, 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and, you, and yet have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he was claiming the name of God for himself. When Moses was talking with God, uh, you know, with the burning bush incident, and he said, you know, whom shall I say is sending me? What's your name? God said, you tell them this, I am has sent you. The Jews knew that as a name of God. And so for Jesus to say, before Abraham was, I am, they didn't pick up stones to throw at him because he had some kind of grammatical faux pas. They were throwing stones at him because he was claiming deity right in front of them. Now, either Jesus was awfully clumsy, a little misguided, misspoke. I mean, you know, as soon as the rocks start to fly, he should have, oh, wait a minute, guys, I did, you, you took me wrong. Uh, what I meant to say was, before Abraham was, if I had been there, I am, I'm, I'm in, you know, something like that. But he didn't. So before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones. He said, okay, passed out of the midst. You see how Jesus is doing the things that only God can do. And saying the things that only God can say. Um, well, we know he's God because Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins. Now suppose for a moment Jesus is not God. If Jesus is just a man, then what happens is uh, this just a man guy dies unnecessarily and then somehow we're delivered from death because of that? You see, our sins deserve death. We deserve to die. But for a judge to pass judgment and sentence on a criminal and then to take that that sentence and put it on another person, that is unjust. That is unfair. In fact, you have a lot of wags these days who, who will point that out and say, how can God be loving and just if he puts my sins on Jesus? That's not fair. No loving judge would do that, and they're right. If Jesus is not God, but if Jesus is God, if he is the Son of God, then what happens is the judge says, here is the condemnation for your sin. It is death. But I'm taking your death, and I'm taking it to myself, and my son will bear it for you. So that the judge both passes sentence and bears the condemnation for us. That's why Jesus can die for our sins. If Jesus is just a man, you and I are dead in our sins and trespasses still. If Jesus is not God then we are still hopelessly lost in the darkness of our sins. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so when he went to the cross and he bore our sins on the shoulders, he could give to us new life, born again, a change, a new creation. He could take from us the sin, the death that we deserve because he is God. That's something that only God can do. No man can do that. Okay. So Jesus uh, just did all those things that only God um, can do. So it just, just reading the gospel narratives, you come to the, the conviction that, that Jesus must have believed himself to be God. And the gospel writers certainly believed that he was God because 
they, they put all this stuff in there that points to him being God. Yeah, nowhere does it say, Jesus say, I am God. But he just does all these God things. And we are driven to that conclusion with any fair reading of the text. Now, does the rest of the scripture teach us that Jesus is God? Okay, folks, um, <laughs> really, it's the same, same spot. I have about 40 minutes left. Ernest and I are going to sit here for another 40 minutes. The rest of you heathen can go somewhere. <laughs> but just very quickly, the rest of Scripture. Look at Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In Hebrews 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Uh, as we've already seen when we went through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews has a very exalted view of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, it starts here in chapter 1. Now, um, the, the, the person speaking uh, in, um, in, in, in this uh, passage in verses, verse 8 is, um, is God himself speaking through his, his word. And so uh, Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament, but it applies it to Jesus Christ. It says, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your, that is the throne of Jesus. And then he says, O God, which is, you know, a, a, it's called a vocative. Uh, you know, th- th- this is who we're, I'm talking to. Your, your throne, Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever. <laughs> Unless the guy's just, just really uh, clumsy in his writing, which Hebrews is not. Here's a verse in which, God, in which Jesus Christ is, asser- it is asserted that he is God. Um, yeah, look... I'm trying to save you some time. But it, here, you, you'll like this anyway. This will be better than dinner, than lunch. Uh, in John chapter 20, I think it is. John chapter 20, verse 28. There it is. You'll recognize this. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, wait a minute. If Jesus is not God, if he does not know himself to be God, if Jesus is convinced that he's just a man bringing people to God, but he is not God, if he is not God, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God, what should Jesus do right then? Tom, no! No, get up. No, no, don't worship me. You can't worship me, Tom. I'm not God. You don't you you worship God alone. That's what he should say. What does Jesus say? Thomas says, My Lord and my God, and Jesus says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What he says is, Tom, not only are you right to worship me and call me your Lord and your God, go get others. We need to expand on this. This is what everybody should be doing. In the, in, at the end of the, the Gospel of John, John says, you know, um, that the, the world couldn't contain all the books that were written. He, he says, but these things are written that you may know and believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing have eternal life. And then he says, and this is the example of it, falling at the feet of Jesus and worshiping him, my Lord and my God. Now, here's how how significant that is. 
Keep that in your mind. Uh, go, go to the book of Revelation. Very last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22. And uh, verse 18. I think it's 18. No, it's not. It's verse 8. 22, 8. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. <laughs> I mean, you may not know this, but the book of Revelation just has a lot of good stuff going on in it that is God-honoring and Christ-exalting and talks about the victory uh, that, that, that we have in the kingdom of God at the end of the ages and all that kind of thing. And so John, having, having seen all that, he's just overwhelmed. And he says, you know, i got to worship. i got to worship somebody. Here's an angel. Falls down at the feet of the angel to worship. And here's what the angel says to him. The angel says... You, this is verse 9, you must not do that. You must not worship me. The angel says, you don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you and the brothers who, and, and the prophets and all those who have kept the words of this book. So you don't do that. Now, if an angel says, don't worship me, don't you think if Jesus were not God and did not believe himself to be God and know himself to be God, don't you think Jesus should have said the same thing? If he's not God, he should have said, Tom, don't. Because he didn't, that makes Jesus the most despicable person on earth if he's not God. Because not only did he accept worship that did not belong to him, but he condemned Thomas eternally for worshiping a false God and sinning against the true and living God. But if Jesus is God, and he is, then the appropriate response is, Tom, not only do you believe for seeing me, go get others. They won't see me the way you did, but they need to bow down and worship me as their Lord and their God as well. We need to enlarge on this experience. Okay. You see how, how Jesus is doing uh, the, the, the God-type things. Um, let me give you um, just, uh, well, I'll, I'll just choose two of these. One of them is uh, Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. The reason I'm doing this is uh, uh, there's a phrase in here that also appears in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And um, uh, people will argue about the meaning of it. Um, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that from my understanding of Greek grammar, particularly the use of the word the uh, and how it's used, it's, it's a fairly complicated um, sort of uh, discussion. But it, but it comes down to, I think, I think the ESV has the right translation. Okay. So look at Titus uh, 2.13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now some people have said, oh, well, that means we're waiting for God and we're waiting for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the both of them. Here's why that cannot be the interpretation. Look at it again. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if there's two of them, and one of them's God and one of them isn't, God does not share his glory with anyone. God does not share his glory. It all belongs to him. 
And so to say that, well, we're going to give glory to God and glory to this man, Jesus, that is to insult the glory of God. Paul says we're waiting for the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only, the only possible explanation that holds all those thoughts together is that this verse teaches us that Jesus Christ is our God and our Savior. And we are waiting for the revelation of his glory. When he comes, oh, well, okay. And all those kinds of things. Um, wow. All right, I'll turn that into a devotional thing. Um, but then I'll, I'll just close with this. Remember, it's in John 14. We won't, we won't turn to it, but Philip goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, show us the Father. <laughs> you realize how... how, how um, big a request that is jesus show us the father yeah we remember that thing with moses and he had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock and covered with his hand and yeah we we understand that uh, and and we remember that even isaiah only got to see the hem of the garment of and 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 the smoke representing the presence of god not god himself we remember that moses only got a burning bush he didn't see god face. we understand that to see god face to face is to die because of our sinfulness but jesus show us the father and Jesus says, Philip, have I been so long with you that you don't know me yet? If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. God that we could never reach. God whom we could never know. God whom we could never comprehend. In grace and mercy, has sent his son, God the Son. And in Jesus Christ, we know the Father. We know him. And we need to know that because it's important for you to know that you are not alone in the darkness. But the light of Jesus Christ shines brightly. The light of the Son of God shines brightly. The light of Christ shines brightly and dispels the darkness. And we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness. And we've been transferred, translated, taken into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And so we worship Him and we adore Him. We magnify Him. Um, we just, just our whole lives belong to Him. Because Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, your grace overwhelms us. The, the, the magnitude of what you do for us in Christ. And Father, it's not just that we don't deserve it, it's that we deserve not to have it. And yet, you give us grace abundantly, freely, over and over. So, Father, I ask now that your Holy Spirit would come in this place, those struggling, those who need Christ, those who need the, need the, the saving work of his blood. Father, your Holy Spirit, work on the heart. Bring that person to a decision to accept Jesus Christ and to say, my Lord and my God. Father, for your glory, I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.